Hello, welcome back to the Modern Retail Rundown. I'm Gabby Barco. I'm here with Editor-in-Chief Kale Guthrie-Weissman. And yeah, Happy New Year. Welcome back. Happy New Year, Gabby. How was how was your break? Did you did you have a good holiday, you know, little rest season? Yeah, yeah. I tried not to look at the news too much, but you know, it's hard. So that was fun. Uh, what about yourself? Yeah, it was good. I I did look at the news, but um, but that's why we're, we're gonna have such a jam packed show today because so many things continue to happen in the retail industry. Yeah, it does not stop. So today we are going to be covering a few topics that uh, you know, some some of the headlines that came in over the week. Uh, these include uh, this is an interesting development, which is that price hikes are backfiring on retailers and brands for a couple of years now. We've been talking about how uh, you know these price increases have been uh, padding margins, but now it seems like there is. A backlash. So we'll get into that later. Uh, then we'll talk about the uh, suppliers reporting low margins, uh, the Shein and Timu suppliers who are reporting low margins and pressure to cut prices. This uh, just kind of goes to show how intense the model is uh, and how much pressure it puts on uh, these vendors. Uh, and lastly, Peloton is coming to TikTok. So Watch out. We're <laughs> going to get into that later. Um, yeah. So first up, let's get into the price hike. So essentially what happened is a couple of different uh, pieces of news, which is that uh, the big one, I think, is Pepsi, uh, who's been one of the big CPG brands that be, that's been um, increasing the, all of their prices basically for the past couple of years is uh, now slowing down sales. I mean, this has been happening for a while, but now we're seeing volume shrinking, but then obviously the, you know, sales price at the end uh, helps keep them afloat, but that's not really working anymore because there's a revolt happening. Tell us about that. <laughs> there's a revolt happening. I love it. I love a revolt, um, especially a French revolt. It's exactly. a new French revolution. I was going to say, it's a classic, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Um, so there, there are a bunch of things at play, and there are a few headlines that were kind of jigsawing together to make this into, you know, a good narrative. But it is a good narrative. Don't worry, listeners. Um, but pretty much, you, I was doing research while while putting together, you know, all the stuff for the show, and you've written a lot about this, which is Pepsi has been increasing its prices over the last couple of years, and even though most of the time Pepsi said maybe our volumes went down a little bit, the increase in price more than made up for it. And it meant that, you know, organic revenue kept growing. It was able to get most people to continue buying the products. But there has been a lot of annoyance, you could say. Um, and, you know, you've written about this. Others have written about this. There's shrinkflation, the idea that uh, some manufacturers, some CPG conglomerates are you know, having pro uh, products that are s smaller in size, but higher in price. And we saw a little bit of this uh, revolt happen specifically with this, the same retailer we're going to talk about, which is Carrefour, which is a European-based uh, grocery brand, pretty much the biggest grocer in all of Europe. Um, a, a few months ago, I think it was earlier this year, Carrefour put up signs that said, just so you know, this is shrinkflation. These are smaller, you know, more higher prices, smaller products. And it was a way to signal to, you know, shoppers, 
you know, you're 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 not getting as much value as you used to. And then now we have um, Carrefour is saying it's not gonna it's not gonna sell certain products from PepsiCo. Uh, in in some of its major markets, let me find the the major markets because this was a, a pretty big one. It was France, Italy, Spain, and Belgium. Um, a variety of its most PepsiCo's most popular products. Um, it's just not going to be in Carrefour for the time being. Um, I know that they've been having a lot of negotiations over pricing, et cetera, and clearly those have broken down. But this is part of a bigger narrative. This isn't just a story about PepsiCo and one major grocer. Uh, the pricing power of of the major companies has been, you know, dwindling over the last few months. A lot of the the bigger players that have raised their prices and have cited just huge demand, even when prices went up, are now saying that's not the case. And so um, we have, you know, General Mills and Targets have both recently cut their sales outlooks, which uh, I think is a good sign that. There's definitely a shift in consumer shopping patterns and consumer demand. You have airlines are cutting their prices for off-peak fares. This was this was all from a CNBC story that just said that the pricing power that a lot of these companies had over the last few years is is beginning to to go down. Um, but I, I wanted to go into because you've covered a lot of the Pepsi stuff, and so let's go into a little bit of the history. Like, what exactly can you give a little bit of details about what happened with Pepsi over the last few years? During uh, the lockdowns in the early pandemic uh, period, you know, all of these food brands, the grocery were killing it. They were doing really well. But, you know, as we got into about 2021, there's a lot of supply chain pressure that was, uh, you know, just making everything more expensive, whether it's uh, freight, uh, ingredients, all of that. So then you started to see just I guess gradually, uh, the prices of things like you know Tostitos or Pepsi or whatnot is starting to creep up. So what's happening is that obviously that's pushing customers to either trade down to things like private label, or I've heard also that you know if you're going to pay six dollars for Doritos, you might as well go for like the nicer, maybe better for you brand <laughs> that's about to cost about the same. So it's like an interesting, yeah, dichotomy there happening, but. You know, I think and this we've been talking about this for about a year or two, but like this is not a sustainable model. You can't just like at some point be, you know, selling a bottle of Coke for ten dollars because that's just not, you know, culturally what we expect from junk food or fast food, at least. Um, but with that said, and then there's been also, you know, political pressure, like obviously this is a problem beyond just snack food. Like this is grocery that millions of people rely on. So it's just become harder and harder for people to afford uh, groceries. And so, but that hasn't really stopped these big companies from hiking prices. And they just kept saying like, no, no, no. Like, you know, up until a couple of months ago, they're like, no, everything's really expensive. We need to keep raising prices. I think Pepsi raised them in the double digits for the past, maybe like seven quarters. So could do the math on that. But then they'll like turn around and tell their shareholders like, no, everything's great because these are the increases are offsetting, you know, the fact that we're selling less uh, products technically. Uh, but yeah, like we said, I think something was going to give at some point. Yeah, there's always been hints of this. And this was I found this quote from a story that you wrote that I thought really got at the the tightrope, the dynamic that these major CPGs were walking. So uh, this was from literally 
pretty much exactly a year ago, or not exactly a year ago, February 2023, uh, Pepsi reported that demand dropped for Quaker Foods in North America and 2% for PepsiCo's North America beverage segment, um, which one would think would be bad news for a company like PepsiCo. But um, the CEO said, focus on driving growth and winning in the marketplace while developing advantage capabilities to fortify our business for the long term was was. The, the major focus uh, for 2023. So this past year, Pepsi said it expected 6% increase in organic revenue and plans to hike prices again. So even though demand is dropping, Pepsi was just saying, I don't care. We're still going to raise our prices. And that had to reach sort of a boiling point sometime. And it seems like that boiling point is now. It's not only PepsiCo, but I think they're a great example of this where they pretty much were doing kind of like they were flying too close to the sun. They kept saying, what if we just increased it a little bit? What if we just increased it a little bit? And after a little bit, that that really has to have an impact. And now we see Carrefour. And I, I want to actually, I think just to really put a point on this, it's not just it's not just Carrefour is going to drop one or two products. According to the Wall Street Journal, um, they saw, or the, the publication saw notes that in stores, they were not selling Lay's, Doritos, Cheeto chips, Baronuts, uh, Alval Gazpacho, Lipton Teas, Pepsi and 7-Up drinks, and Quaker Foods. Those are major, major you know, products that sell. And so if you have one of the major European grocers saying we're not going to sell those, that's going to have an impact. Um, And we're seeing in the earnings reports for some, like earlier, I mentioned General Mills, I mentioned Target, they're all cutting their their outlooks. We don't know what's going on with Pepsi yet. It doesn't report earnings until next month. But I feel like this is a trend we're going to be seeing where all of these companies that really thought they could raise prices and people would continue buying are now like, oh, no, something has changed and and the demand that we saw is not the same, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then one more uh, downside of this strategy is that uh, it also impacts uh, repurchase rates from customers and, you know, the cadence, just velocity. So it's, at the end of the day, I feel like it's just kind of it ends up kind of being all the same. <laughs> I feel like, I don't know uh, if that makes sense, but it it's not I don't know why they think this is a good long-term strategy if you're basically shrinking your customer uh, base or at least the purchases every quarter. But I don't know. Maybe we'll see. Who, who knows what they'll announce soon. Yeah. And there's and another thing that I think CNBC pointed out in its article about pricing power is that the shift that's going on now is instead of the raising of prices, it's the era of cost cutting. And we've written about this, but we're seeing a bunch of, of different companies that once talked a lot about how they were able to, you know, see heightened demand, still raise their prices. Now they're not. Nike lowered its annual sales forecast uh, and planned to cut costs by $2 billion over the next three years. You know, Spirit Airlines uh, offered salary workers buyouts. Hasbro laid off over a thousand employees. All of these are companies that really realize that they can't raise prices anymore because the demand is shrinking. And so they're having to resort to other means by which to conserve cash and try and and grow demand. For the next segment, we are going to be talking about Shein and Timu. This has become a favorite topic of ours organically (laughs) the last couple of months, but obviously they're two huge companies that are constantly in the news. Uh, But 
basically what's happening now uh, this week, the Wall Street Journal reported that they uh, both apps are starting to see pressure from their suppliers, their vendors, you know, everybody basically, the factories that actually make their products, mostly China-based, are starting to report that they are essentially not really making as much money as, you know, there should be or promised at the beginning of their contracts because of the way just inherently Shein and Timu operate, which is that they, instead of placing large orders the way maybe a retailer I don't know, like Walmart would do uh, with a vendor or brand. They are, they do these really small batches that they're hoping to just sell out because, you know, everything is happening in real time. Everything is very urgent when you're on Shein. And so if it sells out, who knows if it's going to come back. That's the whole point. But this is now hurting these uh, factory or at least some of the business owners that sell to them. Yeah, it's, None of this is surprising. You know, the the big question has always been who who are the invisible suppliers and manufacturers behind all of these cheap products that Shein and Timu are selling. But there was a really interesting story that just pretty much said these, you know, these warehouses, these factories are feeling increased pressure to put products up for sale on these platforms. Um, and then they have to manufacture them really quickly. And then they're also feeling increased pressure, or actually not even pressure, they're just being told, you have to lower these prices. And so, you know, even though they're manufactured relatively cheaply compared to, say, U.S. manufacturing, the margins are really hurting these companies. And some of them, according to the story, um, are saying, I I don't want to sell here anymore because I'm not able to really make things work. You know, the price of labor is going up in, in China. And so with all of those factors put together, it makes it very difficult to, you know, do be able to manufacture something both very quickly and very cheaply um, in a way that it can be then shipped out, you know, to other continents in, in the course of a few days. So, um, you know, I thought this was a, a really good reminder of just the the invisible workforce behind these these platforms that have been gaining huge popularity over the last couple of years. You know, there's we've talked about it, nearly every business publication has talked about it. Shein and Timu are, you know, some of the, often the one and two shopping apps on app stores in, you know, dozens of countries. Um, they have billion-dollar valuations. They're talking about going public. They're in a huge public relations war with each other. Um, and I think that there, it's a very interesting thing to hear this being talked about because the the pressure to raise prices is something very similar that Amazon sellers have often talked about. But this is like cranked up to a thousand. It's a very, it, it's a similar but very, very magnified uh phenomenon, I guess you could say. And so, um, you know, the from the Wall Street Journal, the the report said some suppliers that spoke with them said they were grappling with razor razor thin profit margins and intense pressure to cut prices. Other, others said they were drowning in unsold inventory and were questioning whether dealing with Sheen and Timo would be sustainable in the long run. And so it's this constant pressure to have as many products as possible sell. Like if you've been on these apps, it, it's it's an endless scroll of different types of products, some similar, some not. Um, and so the the people who are manufacturing and creating those products are feeling that that pressure to continue putting them on there. And so it's uh, it, it's yeah, it's not surprising, but it's something 
worth noting, especially as more coverage of these companies continues. Yeah, and this is coming at a time, you know, with the coverage actually, is uh, there's a lot of uh, scrutiny of at least she and or has been for a while about, uh, you know, their labor practices, ethics, all of that. So this is kind of pretty much feeding into that is, is the issue. Yeah. And one of the interesting things is that Xi'an is on a big PR sprint right now, which, you know, I'll say again, we've talked about a lot to sort of dampen or recast the conversation about its labor practices. You know, it says, you know, it pays its warehouses fairly. It's tried to sort of be a little bit more open with who makes its products and how they're made. Uh, there's been a lot of skepticism surrounding that. Shein, to its credit, does actually say how many factories and suppliers it works with. According to the Wall Street Journal, it has 5,400 suppliers, primarily in China. But then you have Timu, and Timu will not say. It did not say how many, you know, different factories it works with. It did say that they are mostly in China, but like, this is a big problem where, you know, in one of the most important and largest manufacturing hubs in the world, these two companies are becoming a dominant force and are sort of uh, really impacting, you know, the products that are coming out and the people that are running these factories who are now trying to cater to the needs of these platforms. So definitely interesting. Yeah, and uh, I think maybe the biggest thing would be to see uh whether this will start to impact the number of uh, these factories or these businesses that are selling to at least Shein because uh, the platform relies on constant newness. That's the whole point. Like I just said that before, but uh, so they do need them. I'm sure, you know, there are other, they could always replace them with others, but it's long-term if you're trying to, you know, rebrand into more, a little bit more high end or just, yeah, I guess more ethically run platform uh, that that they'll have to kind of figure out a way to, to close that gap. And I think, and this is a really important point, Sheehan talks about its fast fashion model. I forget the exact branding that it uses to say it's not the same as fast fashion when, you know, it is. Um, but what, one of, it always says that it does everything in very small batches. So maybe it'll release seven of a seven types of a garment, put it on the app, and if it sells, then it'll tell the manufacturer manufacture more of these. But this story kind of goes against that, where you know the Wall Street Journal specifically spoke with some factories who said we had to make a bunch, you know, a bunch of different products. But then if they don't sell. Uh, you're just stuck with the inventory. And not only that, they're not able to sell it on other platforms. And so they're just stuck with dead stock. And that goes against the model that Shein has been touting, which is that, you know, it's it's all totally fine because the only manufacturer are few. And if there's demand, then you'll sell more. But that's not what these factories say that they're experiencing. And I think that that's worth noting because the way that a lot of these apps combat the, the bad public relations is they say that it's not about, you know, flooding the zone in the same way where a manufacturer will make, you know, thousands of the same products. They do it at a much smaller scale, but it still is having an impact and leading to some factories to to make products that aren't selling and then sit on that and be unable to resell it. And it's hurting their businesses. Yeah. 
uh, yeah, it's framed as uh, you know, small batch artisanal runs production runs. But, <laughs> My but... favorite artisanal brand is Shein. <laughs> okay, well, we will watch out for that. I think you know, with the IPO coming up, TBD. But uh, this, I, I'm sure, these types of headlines will continue to increase. Okay, so next up we have uh, Peloton's next move. It is partnering with TikTok on short form content. It's pretty much what it sounds like. They'll be pushing out content to uh, millions of TikTok users of their, uh, I guess some kind of form of what they already teach in their fitness app, uh, their classes. And so this is part of this big Peloton rebrand that started last May, which is essentially trying to become a more inclusive, wide targeting uh, fitness company as opposed to you know, three years ago, it was really very much seen as this like luxury bike. It was always called the Apple or the iPhone of cycling bikes. So, and, you know, targeting kind of like high income households, but they're trying to really get away from that. The reason is once again, big theme is uh, there's a lot of churn, their revenue is down. They essentially were backed uh, into a corner to do this. And yeah, I I think the content strategy is really interesting. It's just hard to tell. I think so far there, it's not really, uh, we're not seeing much results of whether there's more subscriptions from these types of announcements because uh, subscribers continue to drop. So you want to run the numbers there, Kale? Yeah, I was just looking at them there. They're, they're not the prettiest. Um, so uh, in three months ended September 30th, Peloton lost 30,000 members. Um, it also, its revenue has fallen. So it, uh, the most recent earnings, it was $595.5 million. Uh, three years earlier, it was $757.9 million. So over $200 million in lost revenue over the last three years, which is not uh, a great place to be in, uh, especially during a time when people aren't spending as much as they were. And so, you know, it'll be hard to convince people to buy a bike. Thus why maybe you want to get more of a captive audience on TikTok, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because the hardware is a one-time purchase. So the idea is that you, that's how people get in. That's why, you know, they dropped the price of the actual bike and the treads, but you get in and then, you know, the, I think $40 a month subscription is really what the incremental revenue is supposed to bring in retailers love subscriptions, but that's not really how it's working. There is this trend of people who pause and unpause their app based on, I guess, their workout schedule. I know um, I know people who paused it during the holiday season because they're like, I can't deal with working out right now. So it's just not very sustainable, which is why it makes sense that Peloton is expanding and almost like licensing their content because they really, you know, pride themselves on these really high quality uh, virtual classes that they have like famous instructors at this point that teach them. The last uh, partnership that was announced a few months ago was with Lululemon. And we'll get into that because I find that one really interesting. Yeah, I guess my big question is, and it makes sense, you'd want to partner with TikTok. That's where a lot of the eyeballs are. But is is what Peloton wants its customers to do compatible with how people consume content on TikTok? You know, TikTok mm-hmm. is short form. It's ephemeral. Is this is, is this just an ad? According to the story, the partnership will create a new fitness hub. And so am I supposed to go on TikTok now and then do a 20-minute workout? Because that's not how I've ever used TikTok before. Yeah, it, it's 
Right. You're asking a very different audience that's probably scrolling in bed <laughs> to be yeah, exactly. doing that. <laughs> um, although, I mean, I guess it works for things like recipes, right? But most people are probably just saving that for later. But uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see whether this will just look like, you know, with what TikTok looks like now, just to, to the audience, like, will it just look like an ad? It's hard to tell. Or will they be like, oh, look, it's free Peloton classes, essentially, which... That brings me to the next point is that so far, these partnerships haven't really been making money. They they are essentially, you know, there's a lot of free trials and intros. Uh, so they're initial investments, uh, including Lululemon. So kind of similar thing. Peloton uh, last September announced uh, that it is basically pushing out content to the Lululemon fitness app, which is kind of a interesting turn of event. Uh, yeah. And with that said, it's coinciding actually with Lululemon uh, basically discontinuing the sale of Mirror. Remember Mirror? You know, they bought that for $500 million in 2020. That number I will remember till the day I die. <laughs> and I think that's emblematic of the overall this like virtual connected fitness industry it hasn't panned out the way we thought maybe three, three years ago. Yeah, I think that there was a big the beginning of this movement was that these were connected products and they were virtual or digital, I should say. They weren't virtual, they were digital, but they were also expensive hardware. And that fit with the lifestyle of early pandemic. But now that has not panned out. Most of these companies aren't doing well. And so they're trying to find digital tie-ins that can create recurring revenue, get more eyeballs, that type of thing. But I don't know. I was thinking the other day about how there was a, there were a lot of headlines. I talked with a lot of analysts a few years ago about Nike and how Nike was going beyond apparel and was becoming this entire connected, you know, lifestyle. And so it used its app for workouts. You would be able to track all these different things. And that is no longer the same the strategy anymore. And as I said, you know, a few minutes earlier for an earlier segment, you know, Nike's Nike sales outlook is not looking great and it's cutting costs. And so I think all of these grand these grand dreams of being this one-stop connected hub where you will have content and products, et cetera, is not working out for most of these companies the ways that they thought. And for Peloton, that's kind of all, all it has right now. So it has to, it can't rely just on the bike anymore. And so it has to be able to expand its content so that more people will work out and subscribe. And so it's working with these other apps, but also that entire area has been kind of flailing for the last few years as well. And so it's very interesting and we'll see how this works out, but it seems like the strategy that was very dominant in 2021 is not the strategy that's working out now. And so a lot of these companies are probably going to have to regroup if you know these partnerships don't go the way they hoped. Yeah. I think one interesting aspect of this is that just a few short years ago, and I can't believe 2021 was three years ago, but this was the height of, you know, Peloton actually investing in supply chain. Like they bought yeah. a factory. So like, it just feels like day and night of, you know, the demand that they forecasted is, uh, I guess there's like a market cap at some point. Uh, not to mention you could at this point buy a used Peloton for pennies on the dollar. Uh, sorry, but it's literally the truth. You can go on mar Facebook Marketplace to buy one. So that's why, you know, there's all of these pivots had to happen. Yeah. So maybe, maybe TikTok will be the saving grace. Who knows? But 
I will be Isn't it always? TikTok. TikTok is yeah, always. Yeah, TikTok is the, uh, everyone the is, panacea for everything. <laughs> yeah, everyone is just holding out for TikTok to save us. That is our show for this week. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Uh, please come back to the Modern Retail Podcast to hear interviews with industry leaders every Thursday. I believe Kale has uh, always a fun guest. Uh, who do you have on next week, Kale? Next week, I speak with Ryan Babenzine, the CEO and co-founder of Jolie, which is uh, makes a filtered showerhead, among other things. We talked about having a physical product like a showerhead be marketed as a beauty and wellness product. It was a, a really fun and interesting conversation. So definitely check it out. Yeah, yeah. That's that's one company that is essentially doing what subscriptions are supposed to be. Um, yeah. I say that as a Jolie subscriber. Sorry, full disclosure. But uh, And of course, come back Saturdays for the Modern Retail Rundown. We will be back with more news next week. Thank you for listening. Thank you.